Welcome to the Brew Files from Experimental Brewing, our quick hit series where we focus on fundamental aspects of brewing, including styles, techniques, and recipes. More brew, more flavor, more stories, less time, and less ukulele. In this episode, it's been nearly 100 episodes of the Brew Files, and somehow, some way, we've never done a show about Cezanne. We did do Grisette earlier, but nothing about Cezanne. To rectify that, I'm talking with Peter Housen of Quaff about his table Cezanne that won the Belgian A category at the 2020 Maltos Falcons Light Fair, a beer I judged and loved. But first, a message from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by the American Homebrewers Association, a group of more than 40,000 individuals from more than 70 countries who share a passion for brewing and enjoying great beer. Learn more at homebrewersassociation.org. Family-owned Atlantic Brew Supply is the biggest homebrew shop in the Southeast. No gimmicks, no multinational corporate overlords, and no BS. Unique ingredients from local suppliers, including malt from neighboring artisan malt house Epiphany Craft Malts and award-winning recipe kits, including the Toll, Raleigh Brewing Company's GABF-winning Imperial Oatmeal Stout. Plus, we've got pro-level equipment and the best-in-cask supply equipment from sister companies ABS Commercial and Cask Supply. Malts, extracts, and more, all available by the ounce, an on-site calculator to help you craft your best brew, same-day order processing, and guaranteed two-day shipping for East Coast customers. Get 15% off your first order when you use the coupon code BREWFILES at checkout at Atlantic Brew Supply. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. The Pro Series hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American-made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com. Well, welcome back, everybody, and thank you so much for listening to those sponsors. Remember, if you have a chance to interact with any of them, tell them that you heard about them here on The Brew Files so that they know they're spending their money wisely. It should be no surprise to anybody that I am a Saison head, right? It is kind of the thing I built my reputation on. It's kind of surprising me that we've made it this far into The Brew Files, and I haven't done a Saison show. I don't know how that happened. I didn't plan on it, but here we are. Part of the reason that I wanted to bring this particular topic back to bear is I had the chance to do our Maltos Falcons Mayfair judging, you know, due to COVID and the pandemic and everything got squirreled away. Instead of it happening back in April, like it was supposed to, it actually happened in, what was that, September, (laughs) October, a little late. 
And we did those different categories. And I talked about those different categories before. But one of the things that I got to try in my judging round that actually really blew me away was a table saison. And, you know, table saison is a great style, but it's very tricky to pull off. So I figured we would talk to the person who made that beer. Sir, introduce yourself. Hi, I am uh, Peter Housen, and I live in San Diego. And you're a member of Quaff, right? Yes, that's correct. I think, I think by law, if you're a home brewer in San Diego, you have to be sort of gang pressed into Quaff, right? Yeah, there's the two the two beer gangs. I think I kind of it's like the Sharks and the Jets. There's the Quaff, and there's the Society of Barley Engineers. There you go. Yeah, and we'll be talking to the Society of Barley Engineers before too long, but uh, that's for a later date. Now, <laughs> let's talk about you. How how'd you get into home brewing? Um, originally it was my wife bought me one of those massive homebrew kits from one of the big homebrew outfits in the Midwest. And, uh, I'm not avoiding mentioning the name. I just don't remember which one it was. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, uh, it kind of sat there gathering dust for a while. And I decided to try the kit that came with it, which was, if I'm not mistaken for a blonde ale. And I miserably screwed that up. So it sat with a little bit more dust for a while. And, and then I got laid off in, uh, in the last economic joys and had some time on my hands. So I went and bought a, another couple of recipe kits and it sort of blew up from there. So in other words, one taste of failure wasn't enough. You had to tempt a fate again. Ian, a glutton for punishment, man. <laughs> <laughs> I, I appreciate that. Yeah. I, I had the, Almost the same story where the first batch of beer that I made actually came out pretty well. And the second batch of beer that I made was awful. And I abandoned it for about six years. And then I started homebrewing when I came out here to California. Yeah, I shouldn't I shouldn't say it was a total failure because it tasted good. It just didn't carbonate in the bottle, which yeah. is and, – and that to me was an abject failure. Little did I know how abject failure – get <laughs> <laughs> if only you'd known it, it i also wonder a lot of times because when I mean, your story is fairly common you know my spouse my partner my boyfriend my girlfriend bought me a kit and then i became obsessed and a lot of people seem to be like i think they might have regretted buying me that no my wife is not that way it keeps me out of her hair one one or two days a week so <laughs> it's uh, and when i before i found another job it was definitely Definitely keeping me busy to the point where I have what I'm looking at 10 fermenters in the now. It's amazing how much that stuff collects. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny. And the, for the dumbest reasons, too, like the, the idea that you would start brewing lambiques that have to sit for months. So you need extra fermenters so you can continue to brew the beer you drink every day. Absolutely. Yeah. That's always been one of the things I, I recommend to people is the primary reason to get a another set of fermenters is just so that you can have the capacity to do something dumb. Yeah. That takes a long period of time. Now I'm going to assume though that something like your table saison did not take a lot of time. <laughs> that, um, no, even in terms of making. Yes. No, I, I do a long primary. I, I don't know why I've just decided I like a three week primary. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's a two week bottle conditioning. So it's, it's a little over a month ish for a batch. Which is good because it takes me about a month to go through a batch. So perfect timing. It, yeah, it, it works out. So before we dig into the table saison itself, what do you normally make? I make a lot of table saison, but I stick to um, I stick to mostly Belgian styles. But the thing is that what actually got moving was um, my cousin, who's he's actually my mom's cousin, but I can never figure out the whole second cousin X times removed thing. 
Um, he's a guy named um, Bob Tupper, and he's in Washington, D.C. And in the early 90s, he had a, a beer that he had contract brewed, not really contract brewed, but he'd, he'd given the recipe to a local brewery, and they split the profits with it. Um, and this was, you know, before the IPAs were a thing or, or anything. And this was, uh, it was described as an obscenely hoppy beer. And for the, and I wanted to recreate that beer because it, they stopped making it once that uh, brewery, which is Dominion Brewing in Ashburn, Virginia. They, uh, they got bought by InBev, which actually they got by, bought by AB before they did InBev. Um, and they stopped making all the fun beers. So I, and Bob was less than forthcoming with his recipe. I, I don't think it, he didn't want to give it to me. I think he's just a crotchety old guy <laughs> and, and he doesn't, doesn't do email very well, but he, I, I found it in an older book of craft beer recipes from 1999. And I since adapted it to make it my own, but that was why I ended up really getting into it because I wanted that beer again. And it used to be my, daily drinker you know when i lived in dc i just go to the supermarket and buy a, a 12 pack so from there it, the the next thing i got into was saison dupont and i i was getting tired of paying 12 dollars a bottle for that and figured there had to be a recipe somewhere for a saison so i pulled up a recipe and did the basic one and you know the basic follow the rules method which worked pretty well and then uh that just sort of turned into refining and refining over the past three or four years to come up with what you tasted at uh, Maltos Falcons Late Fair. Right. And now, but important to understand that, you know, the Saison de Pont, like the normal Saison de Pont, is what, that's six, six and a half? Uh, I don't know. I just opened a bottle because I'm out of my own. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't brew. I didn't brew in December. I took a break for the holidays. Well, how dare you, sir? Well, <laughs> and then I had a week off. The packaging line was down. That's six and a half. Um, but I took, I brewed, went and brewed every day for a week and did some of them I did second runnings on. And so that's why all my fermenters are full now. I see. That just means all your fermenters are happy. Yes, I'm happy. All mm. but one, actually. I have to have one red for a, I did my first turbid mash. With a with with a lambic that I'm going to turn into a goods eventually. There you go. That'll, that'll be fun. And that is definitely a project. Dupont being, you know, the the regular Dupont being at that six six or six and a half uh, range. The thing that impressed me with the table saison because Dupont makes one right. They make a was it's a Avril. Uh, Avril yeah. as their as their table saison, but I've never actually really liked it because I always felt it was too thin, too grassy. It didn't it didn't feel full on the palate, right? You know, it felt like what everybody thinks a, a, a table beer or a session beer is going to be. And so one of the things that impressed me with the table beer I had at the late fair was that it felt like a full beer. It did not feel like you had, you know, really kind of made a thin watery creature. Original recipe actually tasted a lot like Cezanne Dupont. And I, I do love Dupont, but it does there are things to criticize about it. Well, but I, I mean, being said, there are things to criticize about everything because it's all based on personal taste. And to me, the the saison Dupont, while it's the standard and is a lovely beer, I felt like it always had a little too. It lacked a little bit of bite. Mm -hmm. And so when I, that was one of the things that I kept adjusting over time was adding a little bit of rye, 
um, which is now at about 10%, just under 10% of the, the grain bill. I'm sorry, just over, it's at 11%. Oh, and so, and so you're not taking, when you're saying a little bit of bite, you don't mean like how most American craft beer aficionados mean a little bite, which means a little more hop. No, I mean spiciness, like that, that rye spiciness you get. And, and yeah, bitterness is, bitterness is fine. Um, it's just, uh, you know, it's not what I was looking for in a saison. So let's break the, the table beer down then. Okay. How, how big how big of a beer are we talking about here? Because it was, if my memory serves me correct, like 4%? Uh, I think it's, I think it's 5. Okay. Uh, 5 or 5.1. So it's still going, you know, a full point and a half below your traditional Saison DuPont. Yeah, it's still low for, for <laughs> it's still low for an American beer. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> Uh, and and I would put that in that sessionable level. So walk me through. We got your original gravity can't be very high because saison used tend to be very aggressive. One oh four seven ish. Okay. So um, yeah, and, and I do use the Y E thirty seven eleven. I played with the White Labs. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's five five nine five eighty. Right. Um, Both of those are the French saison or the Therese strain. Yeah, I'm, I I. It's weird, you know. I I took uh, so I work at a brewery and, um, as a cellar person. Basically, I clean stuff. Um, and I took Three a of brewing. <laughs> and I took um, I I brewed two batches at the same time, and then pitched the labs versus the Y yeast. And ironically, we use a lot of White Labs product at, at work um, right. because a lot of what we do is IPAs. Mm-hmm. And they were they all thought that the Y yeast. Uh, yeast tasted better, and ergo, it had to have been the white lab yeast, um, <laughs> <laughs> which is kind of disappointing for them, but entertaining for me. Always. Um, so that's that. I I stick with the white yeast, and I, I can get usually four or five runs out of a out of one pitch before it starts to get weird esters. A lot of lemony stuff happening. Right, and and I'm I'm on the record as you uh, saying that. For the most part, the French saison strains, you know, thirty seven eleven, et cetera, tend to make very boring beer. But you obviously have worked around that. But what I do think you get served by with using the French saison strain in this sort of style of beer, it has the potential to produce, you know, glycerols and it gives a little bit of an extra mouthfeel. Yeah. Which is part of the reason why I like to use it when I'm doing hoppy stuff. And I think that and the rye is part of why you get this sort of a bigger feel in your beer. Yeah, I think the rye contributes a lot. And I also switched to old world hops. Um, they do use a little bit of saz, which is a little, again, a little more bite. Um, but I've also switched to using Strisselspalt and Aramis. Aramis is the bittering, and Strisselspalt is my sort of mixes in with the saz as the aroma hop. Yeah, and I think my traditional old world blend is usually like, yeah, Zots and uh, Styrian Goldings. Yeah, those are, those are all very classical hops for a reason. Actually, Styrian Goldings is what the original recipe called for. Uh, I just moved away from it to more French hops from that. Well, I don't think I've ever used uh, uh, Aramis. What does that give you? It's it's kind of like a high off Strissel spot, really. It gives me the same flavor essentially as the Strissel spot, but with but at a, like six, five or six percent alpha acids versus. Two and a half for Strisselspalt. And so 
We're, we're starting again at 10.47. We're using the YEs 3711. We, you said 11% rye. What's everything else in the mash? Well, whatever Pilsner's on hand, which is usually um, Dingman's, but this last batch that I brewed that I'm going to bottle tomorrow, I, I've tr- I'm i trying to Admiral Malt uh, Pilsner. Um, and then there's a little Vienna. There's 30%, half of it is Pilsner, 30% Vienna, and then a little torrified wheat for um, for head retention. Any particular reason you gravitate towards the torrified wheat as opposed to other forms of wheat? You no, know, it was in there to begin with, and I tried... Um, I mean, I've, I've done it with malted wheat and I've actually tried it with unmalted. That was kind of a, that was a non-starter. <laughs> um, but the malted wheat and the torrified wheat, I, I didn't feel there was a significant difference between the two. Um, and the torrified was already in my you know, push button order at the homebrew store. So that's kind of what I've stuck with. And so, and then we did the 11% rye. What's your mash like? I do a... Uh, Rest for 20 minutes at 129 ish. And this is all like old school cooler mashing. So no, no, no fancy grain father specifics for me. <laughs> uh, and then I bump it up to about 149, 150 for a, a one hour sax rest. Are you doing that bump up via infusion or are you doing like a decoction? Uh, infusion, just adding a bunch of hot water. It really takes about another five gallons of 180 degree water. Well, okay, and that, that's the other question. Then, how, how big of a volume are you brewing of this at a time? Like ten gallons, or no? I'm I'm doing five gallon batches. Okay, so it it I end up with about after it's after the grain is sucked up all the water and and uh, and then it boils off. I end up pretty much at five gallons almost every time. And sometimes I have to top it up by a half a gallon or so. Mm-hmm. Um, but I end up with a starting at about six and a half or seven gallons. I'm saying this on specific terms so that I can make a case for my wife to buy a new kettle with gallon markings on it. <laughs> <laughs> Just say that you need it for accuracy. All right. So we got the, the that low rest. You said uh, a 149 sack rest, right? 149, mm-hmm. 148. And that's about where I do mine too. Do you raise out to mash out or are you just taking it straight out of the cooler? I'm taking it straight out of the cooler. And I, I don't, yeah, I don't do a, uh, you don't do a late rise. No, I, because it's, I'm, I am of the opinion that I'm about to boil it, so I don't need to raise the temperature to 170 to stop things because they're going to stop pretty quickly once I get it into the kettle. Well, and as homebrewers, we also have the advantage of we're not dealing with hours of time to get something up to a boil. Right? You know, we're, not, we're not dealing with long, long periods to get something up to a boil. Yeah, that might change if I ever open an actual brewery, but, but for, for the purposes of the quote-unquote equipment that I have, um, yeah, I think that well, I, the process is fine. Now, are you doing anything with your water chemistry to adjust for your saison? I, you know, I tried um, messing with it using. We, we got a little one of those tiny little reverse osmosis filters that pulled just about everything out of the water. I was actually impressed with how well it worked, like the little under under counter version, um, and it's a three gallon tank. So I I tried doing a batch one time with that and adjusting all the salts and it it threw the flavors off. So really I'm just using San Diego tap water, which to be real, that's how the San Diego, most San Diego brewers started out before people started thinking about water chemistry so much. Um, and it seems to have worked pretty well for the industry writ large. For those of us who are not familiar with the San Diego County uh, water report. It's pretty minerally. It's got a lot of magnesium um, and quite a bit of calcium. 
I mean, compared to RO water, but it's just, and those are the two things that you end up adding back mostly anyway, which is the other reason why I was like, do I really want to spend that much time futzing with salts and and whatnot and adding another point of failure into my, (laughs) to my process. And also another point of maintenance too with the RO system. Well, that's, that's my wife put that in because she didn't trust the city water. So it's going to be there whether or not I like it. And I still have to do this, even if I don't use the water. So, all right, and then, so we're doing the, the you said an hour mash with the or sack rest, mm-hmm. and then I pull off the first gallon, and then and re- and uh, well, I'm losing the words now. Vorloff. Yes, thank you. Just like the first one gallon, and then I was doing like being meticulous and paying attention to when the grain stopped popping out of the tube at a certain rate, and. And then at some point, I was like, you know what? If I just pull the first gallon off, that definitely clears it, and, and I don't have to. I can do other stuff while that's going on. You're in a cooler. Are you are you fly sparging? Are you batch sparging? Are you? I don't know that I'm even sparging at that point because I've added so much water. It's just coming just uh, in to to get up to yeah. I'm just completely going right out of the cooler into the boil kettle, and uh, I don't other than the other than the Vorloff part. I don't add anything else at that point right and so i mean in reality kind of what you end up doing is you're doing the exact same technique that people are doing when they're doing brew in a bag you're just using a different filtration system exactly all right and so we go into the kettle yay everybody's in the pool <laughs> um and you said at that point you've got six seven gallons yeah okay and then you're hopping with your aramis and your zots and your strissel spalt yep what, what does that hopping regimen look like uh, it's an ounce of Aramis at uh, 60 minutes and then a quarter ounce of Saz and a quarter ounce of Strissel Spalt at 10 minutes and then the rest of the uh, three quarters of an ounce each of those same two at two minutes. So basically flame out. M- minimal sanitation, minimal heat. Yeah, exactly. But also not trying to go for the, the super hoppy everything in the whirlpool. No. <laughs> no. Actually, you know, that, that's kind of funny. I wonder how Strissel Spalt and... and- Zots would do in a long, cool whirlpool. Well, my my experiment this batch was um, putting the Aramis in at first work, so just sticking it in the kettle and dumping right out of the, the mash tun into the the kettle. Well, it'd be, yeah, it'll be interesting to see. And I, I just had a debate last night with somebody about the value of first word hopping. That you know, there. Are, that's the other thing of working at a brewery. I get to pick the brewer brains. And we do, there are some beers we do with first word hops and there are some beers we do, um, or most of the beers we do normal. And I, he hasn't been totally forthcoming with why we do what we do, but. You hit close to, well, my suspicion would be, is that you hit close to the, to the, to the target there with something that you had said earlier, which was, I, I continue to do this because that was how the recipe was set up originally. Yeah. And there's a lot of stuff in brewing where people do exactly that. It's like, well, you know, this is what we did for the past 10 years and it's worked. So, <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I think, yeah. I think sometimes when you press somebody for an answer and they don't give you one, uh, that might be part of the reason. In my previous life, I was, um, I worked in marketing and, and it was always irritating to me when people would call us in to change things up and they'd pay us for three months to put together a plan and we'd come in and present it at the meeting and then some in the room would say, but that's not how we did it last year. <laughs> <laughs> <It's> like, well, 
if you do what you did last year, you're going to get the same results you did last year. If you want change, you got to change. We got the we got the beer boiled for I'm guessing an hour, right? Mm-hmm. All right. So the beer's boiled for an hour. You got all your hops in. Uh, chill down. Pitch with your with your white white thirty seven eleven. Now you're not adding any other flavors, right? So there, I mean, there's no orange peel in here. There's no spices. There's just the beer and the 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 beer coming out of the kettle. Yes, it is beer flavored beer. Well, then flavored with a funky yeast. <laughs> and so for thirty seven eleven, I mean thirty seven eleven is a a monster fermenter. It is reliable as all get out. It doesn't tend to have much in the way of uh, problems. So you're not having to worry about any sort of a Saison stall like you would get with the DuPont strains. But uh, are you just basically setting your temperature and letting it go? Yep. Yeah. Let nature take its score. Okay. And then you had said three weeks in primary. Yep. And then you bottle and you do bottle conditioning for two weeks. Now, do you do the bottle conditioning with this beer because you feel like it's served more by being bottle conditioned or I, so there are two reasons. One time I don't have a kegerator and I don't feel like getting one um, because I do prefer bottle conditioning. I think it I, I think adds a certain amount of character and primarily because especially with a lot of Belgian strains, you end up carbonating in the three, two, three, 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 five range, which um, is it, I found it's not as easy to 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 accomplish with kegging. Well, I think the big thing is you have to remember to make sure that you have appropriate size draft lines uh, when you when you're doing that. I would rather soak bottles once a month rather than to maintain a, a draft line. Having having taken draft classes on draft brewing systems, I, if, if I'm not going to do that unless someone's paying me. You know, I think. Uh, I, I think you have a very unusual attitude amongst homebrewers in that regard. Yeah, I do. I'm aware of that. I, I've been told that before. <laughs> well, good. You know, I mean, that's that's actually what we need. We need we need all the unusual thoughts. Yeah, I mean, I do have my my neighbor is um, who's been my sort of brewing. Um, he's been homebrewing since I think the day that it became legal, and probably before that, but he just won't admit it. Um, but he's got a full on, you know three tap system with a kegerator built into the, into his house so that he's got taps on the outside on his patio and the keyser is in, in the basement. So I have plenty of access to draft beer if I need it. Yeah, you're, you're not, well, I mean, you're in San Diego, you're not hurrying for beer in the first place. And I work, I work at a brewery. So, which means you have short fills for days and, and allocations and everything. Um, all right. So now we get to the, the two week bottle conditioning period. Uh, do you, do you bottle condition like the Belgians do warm or do you? Yep. Okay. Um, yeah, I think the, if I remember correctly from my trips around Belgium, like you'd see like an Orval, they'd have a, a room at like 76 degrees or 78 degrees. And that's where they did all their bottle conditioning. Yeah. And I, I have a basement, which is also weird in San Diego. Um, and that is almost, it's more consistent at 72 degrees than the outside weather, which is what I was promised when we moved here. <laughs> the weather today but it's raining like crazy oh yeah yeah today today is a rare day in southern california it's raining and it is 50 degrees yeah <laughs> these are the days that i think i have to sue my wife for false advertising well and by the way you and i are also uh, unusual twins in the sense that both you and i have basements yeah <laughs> that and for anybody who does not live in southern california the idea of actually having a walk-in basement around here is very strange 
all right, we get we get the warm bottle conditioning period. Now, do you find that this beer is good to go right from the start, or do you feel like it even needs a little extra time? No, at two weeks. In fact, I've accidentally opened stuff after one week, and it was it was passable. It wasn't as good. Like there was not as much carbonation as I would have wanted, but it was still a, a non <laughs> a non home brewer, some a normal a civilian, let's call them, would not be. Um, aware of the, the difference it's a, a 37 11 is just it's aggressive and it stays aggressive um so it i think it does its job pretty well and that's one of the reasons why i like it i did try the the other it's the dupont string call is the the belgian saison string which is really a misnomer because strain that they pull for the the quote-unquote french saison strain is really just from the wall the southern version of uh area of belgium they speak french so it's a language-based thing if they're being honest they should call the other one that for dutch saison yeast flemish so i mean you, you even at one week you're feeling like it's good but it's not great it's adequate right now given that this is sort of a lower gravity beer Oh, you know, I never asked. What was what's your final gravity? You said ten forty seven is your starting gravity. What's your final gravity? Generally, it's around one oh eight to oh six to oh eight, depending on the batch. Yeah, and that, that seems about right for for the French saison. I, I know some people out there like to report numbers like my French saison took it down to ten oh two, and I'm like going no. Yeah, so I, you know, it's and would you really want it that low? Because you lose you lose a lot of body when you get down there. I agree, but the, the, some people take it as a, as like a a matter of pride. And some hey people uh, people are strange. Exactly, <laughs> I noticed that. How how long does this beer last? Granted, now of course you're saying you're usually drinking. Yeah, I know you're usually saying you're drinking it within a month because you've you've got your next batch coming up. But like, if you've squirreled bottles away, how long do you think it would stay good? When I was being a dork, I would save one bottle from each batch. And uh, the other day, I got really curious and opened one of the older batches, and it actually held up really well. It was there was no I mean, obviously, because that's one of the other reasons I like bottle conditioning is because some of the bigger beers I do, I'm not going to I'm not going to drink five gallons of quad in a in a month um, or even two months. So I want that to be able to sit. And one of the advantages of bottle conditioning is that it does suck a lot of the oxygen out of the bottle, so you don't end up with do problems. It helps the beer last longer. Like I I pulled I pulled it. A couple of bottles of saison, a couple of bottles of triple that from the first batch I made before I started doing all grain. So they, these were extract batches or partial mash rather, and uh, and that was you know they all taste pretty good. The only ones that I've had problems with were when I did uh, you know something uh, super duper hoppy, and then there was a lot of weirdness, um, a lot of hop degradation. Well, I think the main thing is the lesson's always going to be the case of the better you can store your beer and the more consistently you can store your beer, yeah. the better your beer does over time. Uh, commercial exactly. beer suffers from the fact that once it hits the distributor's hands, the brewery doesn't have much control. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, now, like I said, when I had this beer at the the late fair, it blew my socks off because I it was it was great. It was full bodied. It had all this flavor. It didn't feel particularly weak, and it didn't feel thin. Um, and if I remember correctly, it when it went up to the best of show, it ended up 
Did, did it take one of the runner-up positions? No, I don't know. I, you know, I only know what the top three were. First of all, thank you for your comments. Um, but I, I don't, I didn't get a list of everybody. It was, they only gave us a list of the top three. And I know that they were all big, scary, super all beers, except for that one pill. Right. Well, and so, and I remember the discussion with, I had later with a couple of the best show judges. Uh, there were at least two of them that were arguing to put the table says on up in the, up in that top three area. So that's yeah, good to know. Yeah. It got close, particularly with a, a low, a lower gravity beer. So before we wrap up, as you're looking at this beer and thinking about, you know, additional matches, is this beer sort of locked in where you want it to be? Or are there additional things that you want to do? I would say I'm satisfied with where I am now. Um, but I, I do think there are things I want to try. I mean, obviously I, the first word hopping is, is, uh, that's an example of like, I'm always willing to mess with the recipe. Especially now that we're in quarantine and nobody's going out and drinking, I can't have friends over to drink the beer. Um, so the only person who's going to suffer if I screw it up is me. Um, so I, <laughs> I've sort of been moving, you know, through different things and you read stuff on different techniques and procedures and, and, find different grains like the admiral stuff was all of a sudden available at the homebrew store here and uh so you throw the throw the things in the mix you try different grains but generally in terms of the the proportions i'm actually pretty happy with where it's at well then great um i mean you and i talked about when we first talked about this in the um Falcons meeting mm-hmm. the, the thing that i i was looking for was that historical saison functional beer where it was a, a nice sit down and drink beer mm-hmm. where you could have two or three of them hang out over the course of a couple hours um, and not feel hammered. And it was, that was what I was looking for. And I think that's what I've got. See, that's great. And again, I know listeners, you can't actually taste the beer. You're just going to have to depend upon the fact that I'm not lying to you. I think this particular <laughs> recipe was, uh, was really good. I mean, it really, really, it really kind of made me go, Oh, Hey, this is something I'd be very happy to have. So Peter, I just wanted to say thank you for taking the, the time out of the, uh, out of the weekend to sit down and chat with me for a little bit and tell people about this. We'll make sure, like I said, that we get the recipe up online. Are there any last thoughts that you want to leave people with? We want to talk about how uh, people are bastardizing saison. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that might take another two hours. <laughs> Yeah, apparently we have opinions. <laughs> so the only thing I would say is you should always try the Saison when you go to a brewery. Saison and the Pilsner are the ones that are going to show you where they're at. Well, yeah, Pilsner will always show you somebody's technical proficiency. And if you see a Saison on tap, that's generally because somebody in the brewery is damn well determined they're going to have one. Right. Yeah. And they're only de- that determined because they love it. Yep, exactly. Well, Peter, thank you, man, uh, for taking the time. I appreciate you hanging out. I appreciate you sharing the the beer recipe with us. I also appreciate the fact that I got to try that beer. (laughs) Thank you. I appreciate your comments. Well, there you go. And again, like I said, the recipe will be in the show notes. So stand by and get ready to brew a really nice table saison. Thank you, everyone, for joining us on another episode of The Brew Files. We hope that you enjoyed this first exploration of saison, a new and emerging style that I think might be going places. But in reality, give this recipe a try. If you can get it down like Peter has, you'll be rewarded with a daily drinker that's never boring. 
Now the question is, can we go lower? Remember, if you have show ideas, styles, brewers, techniques, ingredients, etc., you can drop us a line at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. You can reach us at Denny at experimentalbrew.com or Drew at experimentalbrew.com. You can find us on Twitter at EXP Brewing, on Instagram, on Facebook, on Reddit, and just about every homebrew forum out there. And of course, you can always find us at www.experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget, you can support the podcast by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, click the AHA, Amazon, Brewers, Friends, or BYO links on the website, and by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is still World Central Kitchen, feeding those who need help in times of crisis. So until next time, remember, the brew is out there, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Brew Files. This episode is brought to you by Brewers Publications, publisher of Historical Brewing Techniques, the lost art of farmhouse brewing. Purchase your copy of Historical Brewing Techniques at brewerspublications.com. Brewers Publications.